There's a popular song that boasts, I did it my way. Though it sounds appealing, is this really the best way to live? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We're going to look at almost 400 years of history when an entire nation decided to do it their way in our lesson on the books of Judges and Ruth, My Way or God's Way, Which is the Better Way to Live? From our earliest days, we want to do things our way. We don't want anyone else to tell us what to do. Though we may appear to go along with rules as we get older, in our heart of hearts, we often think we know what's best for us. But do we? The books of Judges and Ruth give us, an interesting, give us interesting pictures from Old Testament history on what happens to individuals and people when they either do what they want to do regardless of what God wants, or, in rare cases in these books, trust Him no matter how difficult it might be. Judges is a little studied book in its entirety, but as you'll see, it's a very relevant one for our world today. Here's some basic facts about Judges and Ruth. Both were most likely written by Samuel, and the time frame is approximately 1380 to 1045 BC. The books cover the same time reference, around 335 on the lower end, and some scholars say up to around 400 years, but about that long. In other words, a significant amount of time. Many people often skip these books, or what's more common is they read just selective stories out of them, and that's understandable, because Judges is a really depressing book, as the people and their leaders go from being a victorious people of God when the book starts, to a people oppressed by their enemies because of their sins as the book goes along. The Bible summarizes the entire span of the book in this way in Judges 21-24 where it says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, they did it their way. Now, there are some tips that you need to keep in mind on reading the book of Judges correctly. Remember or review the lesson that I did previously on how to read the narrative and story parts of the Bible. Keep in mind that not every story, not every action recorded in the Bible is something to follow. Judges is one of the best examples of this. It's how God reports true events in the Bible, but many of them are not positive ones. We're supposed to understand, as we see the people's actions and consequences, why this is happening and how people ought to behave. And from their lessons, from, from their examples, their successes, their failures, we then learn the lessons that we need to apply to our own lives. Now be especially careful in reading about Old Testament quote-unquote heroes. This may be the first time you've read Judges in detail, and when you do, it might be surprising to see a more complete picture of characters such as Gideon and Samson. Now both of them, each, each one of them, they did great things, but their lives are not lives you want to emulate. We're reminded in all of Judges, that the true hero of the book, and remember all books of the Bible, is God. God is the one who shows mercy, who uses imperfect people to accomplish his plans.
Now, as the book opens, Joshua's died and passed on the leadership to... And that's the first problem. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> we don't have a clear line of leadership succession. In Judges 2, 7, it starts out by saying, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua died. And then it says, immediately after that, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And whenever I read that, I remember the first time I read it, and I thought, wait a minute, what happened here? We are never told why he, Joshua, and the other elders didn't intentionally train a leader or leaders. But we see the results in the next around 400 years from the death of Joshua until Saul becomes king. Now, I keep asking, why was this? What happened? And let's contrast the life of Moses and Joshua, perhaps to get an answer. Now, please keep in mind, I, I want to have give you this disclaimer here this is important. I'm sharing what I'm going to in the next few minutes simply as my opinion. It's not a categorical truth from scriptures. There's some things that I share very forcefully, very categorically. I say this is what the Bible says. What I'm going to share in the next little bit isn't, but I think it is based on many scriptural principles and is important to look at. But as I've thought about it, why one passed on strong leadership and the other didn't, I come to these ideas. Anyway, here goes. Both of them led, legislated, and fought numerous battles. Even though the Israelites didn't go into the land, they still had to fight during those 40 years. They thought they were getting out of battles. They didn't. We see numerous battles, numerous uh, events that were very challenging recorded. So there were many similarities in the demands of their lives. Uh, I'm talking about Moses and Joshua. So that wasn't the reason why one passed on things, the other didn't. But here is a big difference that's pretty clear in one area. Moses preached to the people continuously about how they ought to serve God. He got the laws, he preached them, he shared them, then he preached them again, then he preached them again, then he preached them again. Just before he died, he preached four lengthy sermons that make up the book of Deuteronomy. Other than battle instructions, though, we really don't hear much from Joshua, except he had one final sermon where he says his famous line, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Now that's very good. That's, you know, very solid statement and all that. But basically, and and forgive me if I mean a little bit cynical here, he's basically saying my family will serve God, but whatever the rest of you do, <laughs> that's your problem. Um, and the results were not good. I can't help but wonder if the history of Israel for the next almost 400 years would have been different if Joshua had cared as much about instilling the commands of God in all the people, not just his family, his family was important, but in all the people as much as Moses did. Now that was then, this is now, and what lesson can we learn from what happened? The really important thing for us is we need to be intentional, consistent, and persistent about the biblical truth we pass on to coming generations. We do not live in times favorable to the Christian faith, and I don't imagine that it's ever going to get much better.
Our world is similar to the one the children of Israel faced. I think we need to very seriously warn coming generations of how hostile our culture is to our faith and how we must respond by knowing and living God's word. That's why I do these lessons. That's why I'm continuously trying to encourage you. We need to be more interested in preparing and challenging the next generation rather than in making sure that they have a good time. I see so many uh, youth programs or even parents or whatever and friends where they're just really concerned that their kids have a good time and good memories and they want them to think happy thoughts and all this. And that's nice. That's very nice. I don't want to be too much of an old curmudgeon. But We've got to get very, very serious with younger people. The world is hostile to us. It doesn't appreciate the Christian viewpoint. And not that we get negative and icky or anything like that. But we need to understand that life can be probably will be very difficult. And so we want to be strong in our faith to be able to live it well. And we're going to have a great example of that in the book of Ruth, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Back to Judges. Here is the overall pattern of the book. The people sin, they serve other gods, the ones they should have gotten rid of, but they didn't. Serving other gods results in moral deterioration that you see especially in the later chapters of Judges, which are just so depressing. God punishes them by allowing the people who should have been conquered, such as the Philistines, to oppress them. The people cry out to God for deliverance. God responds and sends a judge, and they are delivered. But then the cycle repeats itself when they forget God's deliverance and go back to worshiping other gods. Now, who were these judges? Overall, Warren Wiersbe, the wonderful and very readable Bible commentator, defined a biblical judge in this way. He said that person was a ruler, military leader, one who decided in judicial matters, but who did this over just a limited area. They didn't have any income or taxing power, and their position was not a hereditary office. But each one of them was called and empowered by God. Warren Wiersbe says regarding the judges that, quote, the monotony of Israel's sins, constantly worshiping other gods, can be contrasted with the creativity of God's methods of deliverance. He just did all kinds of different things, and no two stories are the same. Now, 12 is the original is the traditional number of the judges, but some of them we know very little about. For example, Ehud, Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Eban, Elon, and Abdon. We don't really know much of anything about them, except it says they were judges. But let's look at just a few of the more complete stories. First of all, Deborah in Judges 4 and 5. Israel had been suffering 20 years of oppression. Now it says, as the chapter opens, that she was already leading Israel and serving as a judge. God called her to deliver the people. She summons Barak to lead the army. He does. He's victorious, though the war ends with the opposing general being killed by an, another woman, Jael, who was a Kenite woman. Now, it's kind of interesting because the Kenites were actually relatives of Moses. His wife had been a Kenite. And once again, after her judging Israel, it says the land had rest for 40 years. Now, a few comments on Deborah. She was the only judge that was called a prophet. 
until Samuel, she is also the only one who is actively serving God that we know of when she was called to deliver the people. She is also the only one who writes a psalm of praise after victory that was included in the Bible. Her life shows, and it's interesting that there's no comment that she was unusual or unique or anything like that, that women did lead, prophesy, and hold a position of spiritual authority and power in the Old Testament. Next, we'll look at Gideon in Judges 6-9. through 9. Now, Israel was later then oppressed by the Midianites, for, it says, for seven years. The Midianites were also descendants of Abraham. They were the people that Moses fled to, but something had gone really wrong in their relationship with the Jews in the 40 years that they were wandering around. Idol worship became rampant. In Gideon's town, there was an altar to Baal. The angel of the Lord, though, appears to Gideon, and he's thre- he's hiding in, uh, they said, the wine press, threshing grain, because the Midianites would steal it. And God says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, mighty man of valor. And Gideon, you know, this as the story goes, is kind of looking around saying, who are you talking to? It isn't me. Gideon protests and says, well, if God's with us, why do we have all these problems? The Lord does not tell him why. He knows why. It was because of the idol worship, even there in Gideon's hometown. And he knows that this is one of the punishments that they will have, that God made very clear that this is what would happen if they quit worshiping Almighty God. But God doesn't go over any of that. Gideon's supposed to know that. We know that. He simply calls him to be the deliverer. Then we have the situation with the fleece where Gideon is testing God to see if he'll make it wet one day and the ground around it dry and dry one day and the ground around it wet. And he's doing this because he didn't believe God's call. He's doing it to confirm that God really called him. It was not a sign of trust. It's a sign of his continuing unbelief. To do tests like this shows that you don't believe God. Now, God is merciful in his answer, but this is not given as a story in the Bible for something we are supposed to do. He was never commended for doing this. It is not an example that we should follow. Gideon then decides he's going to be obedient. He calls out his army. The Lord, though, reduces his army from 22,000 to 300, and yet he gives them a great victory. The lesson here. If you don't think you have the resources to do what God wants, that might be precisely the point. Precisely where God wants you to be for Him to do a miraculous work. But after the victory, the people wanted Gideon to rule over them. He refused, but he makes a golden epod. It was that was like the breastplate that the high priest wore, and the people ended up worshiping it. They did have 40 years of peace, but then the people returned to sin. His son, Abimelech, kills all his brothers and is a tyrant until he dies in battle. Now, while all this drama is going on, the story of Ruth is taking place. There's a famine in Israel, and a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi go to Moab because they hear that there is food there. Their two sons marry Moabite women, but then, sadly, all three of the men die. 
Naomi hears things that hears that things are better back in Israel, and she decides to go home. Both daughter-in-laws start out with her. One turns back, but Ruth remains. And she has that famous saying, wherever you go, I'll go. And um, a lot of times it's used as wedding things, but it's really for her mother-in-law, not her husband. But anyway, Ruth says this, and the most significant part, though, of her declaration is when she says to Naomi, your God will be my God. In going with Naomi, she is basically stating and declaring her faith in the God of Israel. Well, they go back to Bethlehem, and it's really important to note something about Bethlehem, that it was obviously a city that still revered and lived by God's laws. We see this in two areas. Well, we see this in a number of areas. First of all, there's no mention that they had idols in their center of their town or uh, the Baals or the Asherah poles or a number of these things that are described in other areas. But also, we see that they obeyed the laws of gleaning and that of the kinsman redeemer. Now, the most important thing to note with the book of Ruth, with the city of Bethlehem overall, with Ruth, Naomi, and later on Boaz, that there are always people who will serve God in the midst of evil times. So let's get back to the story. Ruth and Naomi have no money, no income, no protector. So Ruth goes out into the fields to glean. In other words, she's going to gather up leftover scraps in the field. Ruth happens to go into Boaz's field. He notices her, and he protects her. He is her kinsman redeemer, one who can buy their land, marry Ruth, and have children to carry on the name of the family. And he does that. Their son is Obed, and he's the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Ruth is blessed, and Naomi ends her life with joy. Now some of the lessons from Ruth. No matter how bad overall society may be, no matter how difficult personal circumstances may be, God always has people who serve Him. And God is at work in their lives and circumstances. That's why it's important for us to not focus on things that we can't control, but on our God who is in control and who will work out His plan no matter what. Next we come to Samson. He's in his stories told in Judges 13 through 16. Now he was called from birth to be a judge and when he was younger he married a Philistine woman. Now that was expressly forbidden. God said that um, he he did allow it but it didn't go well and he ends up killing a thousand Philistines in revenge for um, they ended up giving away his wife and it's, it's just really a horrible story. It says he then led Israel as a judge for 20 years, but he never got over his issues, his sins with women. It talks about how he went to Gaza, a Philistine city, and visited a prostitute. And then it says sometimes later he fell in love with Delilah, a Philistine, and most everybody knows the story of Samson and Delilah. After many deceptions, 
he finally reveals to her the secret of his great strength. That's because the Philistine rulers, they bribed her and they threatened her and they said, you've got to find this out. And so she nags him and he comes up with all his reasons. But finally he says, it's because I've never cut my hair. I've been a Nazarite from birth. His hair is cut. He is weak and captured, and his eyes are put out, and he's forced to grind grain for the Philistines like an animal. But it says the hair on his head began to grow. And at one time, the Philistines decided to bring him to their temple so that they could mock him, so that they could make fun of this great warrior. And now he was defeated and a blind man. Samson, though, says to the Lord, he says, just give me one more chance, one more opportunity to avenge myself. And so he asks a young man with him to put his hands on the pillars of the temple. He does that and he prays, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And the whole temple crashes down. It is, of course, a story, a great example of God's second chances, no matter how terribly badly people mess up. Now, what's really interesting, and if you go look at the video on YouTube, you'll see a picture of this, but archaeologists have discovered Philistine temples, and both temples, the two of them that they discovered, have a very unique design, and you can actually see uh, the base of these in this picture that I have for you. The temples had two central pillars that supported the roof. The pillars were made of wood and they rested on stone support bases. The pillars were about six feet apart. A strong man could dislodge them from their stone bases and bring down the entire structure. And we know that is what happened in the book of Judges. Now, there are many reminders that these early stories, they're not fairy tales, it's real people and real places. There are many archaeological verifications, names, places, battles, timelines, and I don't really have time to go into all of them. You can see some pictures of them again on the video of this, but the, there is the Mantafa Stele, the Ekron inscriptions, the Ras Samar, the uh, Ugarit, uh, again another stele, which is, these are just stone pillars, and all of them confirm place names, dates, all of all kinds of early verifications that these people and places existed. Now, this isn't a small thing. This kind of verification does not happen in all religious texts. There are many religious books that literally are fairy tales, and the religions themselves will say, well, these are just fanciful stories. That isn't the case with our Bible, and please do look at the lessons that I've done on the historical accuracy of the Bible as compared to other scriptures. One of the things I was just saying to someone at church just this week, I said, you know, there's a reason our our Bible has maps and other scriptural Bible, other scriptures of other religions don't. She looked at me like, what? I said, because our history 
took place in real times and real places. And there are a number of religions that their early history is completely fanciful, and they don't have maps in their scriptures because these places really did not exist. Now, the book ends with some truly horrible stories. In Judges 17 and 18, a Levite serves a man for pay, and he uses his family idols. He takes him away from his mother and his family, and this guy says he's going to pay him, and so he he works for him. And then a group of Danites come by, and they take the Levite with them, and they promise to pay him even more, and so he goes with them. They go to another city, and they slaughter everyone there. Then in Judges 19, we have the story of a Levite and his concubine. Now remember, these are supposed to be the people of God, teaching people how to serve God. But um, he, uh, he, his concubine runs away. He takes her back. Uh, there's this horrible story of where she's abused and brutally killed. And then in revenge for her death, a tribe is almost completely destroyed. And following that, because of the foolish vow, the men of that tribe have to kidnap women to be wives for their warriors. I mean, these are horrible, horrible stories. This is not how God's people were supposed to live. And then the book ends with a summary statement, the overview statement that I shared with you at the beginning, where it says that in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The challenge of judges. It's his way or our way. It's our choice. Judges shows what happens when people do it our way. We have a choice. No matter what might be happening in our crazy world, individual actions matter. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and this is in the message translation. This is really good. It tells us how to make the positive choice for living God's way. And let me read it to you. So here's what I want you to do. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Our choices matter now and forever. They matter to the people around you, maybe in a big way, like the judges did to the people they delivered. Maybe you're in a place of significant leadership and you need to lead in a godly, strong way. But most likely, you'll probably be like Ruth. And for her, even though she didn't know it, her actions and our actions matter tremendously for those close to us. Who knows what might have happened to Naomi had she gone back alone. But... Even more than caring for her, Ruth didn't have any idea in this earthly life that she was part of the great story of salvation that God was working out. She was the great-grandmother of King David, an early ancestor of Jesus. 
Now none of us see our part in the great story God is writing, but all of us, like the good judges, like Ruth, can simply trust God as we follow His will in daily tasks and trust Him to take our small efforts and use them as He pleases to work out His redemption of our world. I imagine when we look back from heaven at the results of good choices we've long forgotten that there will be surprises. That's all for now. Please check out the various materials that are related to this lesson, links to the podcast, the video, notes, all sorts of other things that are on www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.